0: Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple of things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have, or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Amen. Well, according to Open Doors USA, which is an international non-profit ministry, that supports and strengthens those who are persecuted Christians around the world. They have some things listed on their website that I want to read to you today to kind of set the tone um, for where we are in the book here of 1 Peter. And to kind of get our minds right, if if you will, today as we begin. Here's what they said. Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide. Bible said they would be, right? Y'all here? Is it just me in here or is it the lights? An average of at least 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Jesus. Because of what you believe and because of what I believe, and more than 60, in fact, a third of the countries in our world are persecuted, considered persecuted countries of the Christian faith. You say, Tom, why are you starting with that? I mean, I'm looking here at First Peter. I'm seeing, you know, the next two verses, 8 and 9. I don't see that really here. I want to set the context for us because this book was written in that context. These fellow believers in Christ are being persecuted for one reason and one reason only their faith. That's kind of difficult for us because we don't live in that realm, if you will. We're part of the other two thirds who lives in an unpersecuted country where the most persecution is somebody got my seat on Sunday morning. That's some tough stuff. That's rough. In countries around the world, though, the truth is is that our brothers and sisters in Christ are routinely and systematically mistreated, discriminated against, tortured, and even killed for believing what we believe and preach every Sunday here about Jesus. So it's in this context we start today, and I want to kind of set our minds right that the book of 1 Peter was written. When we read this passage of Scripture, we need to understand that the culture and the context in which we read it out of our American culture is far different from the culture and context to which Peter was writing the people in this book. Their hardships were as real as ours. And I'm not downplaying any hardship that you may be going through today. I know that what you're going through is real. But let's put it in context. None of us had to get up this morning and fight our way here. We didn't have to call our neighbor to find out where hope was meeting. We know it's right here at 850 Cactus Avenue. We didn't have to wonder if we'd be arrested on our way here. Well, some of us might have wondered that. I I don't, you know. Not for Christianity. (laughs) But you're not going to have to worry about people coming through the back doors today, probably, I'd assume, to take you somewhere else because of what you believe. That's what these people were actually going through. They were the scattered. They were the aliens. We're aliens too. We're scattered as well. But understand that what they went through, when we read these next two verses, was a very, very serious matter. Your struggle is real. I get that. My hard time is real. I get that. But know this. We have to also understand that the distress that the readers of this book in 1 Peter, what they were enduring is as important as anything else to know today. Think through this. This was more than this happened to me. This is more than I'm suffering through a health issue. And I'm trying to be as sensitive as I can. Pastor Brian and Pastor Vance just got back from Southeast Asia. And they're going to be able to tell us some stories over the next few weeks and months and maybe years. About people that they were able to meet. Who've gone through exactly what I'm trying to describe today. That their biggest problem is not something that they caused through sin. Or their biggest problem is not something that happened to them that they couldn't stop through some health issue. Their biggest problem is, will I be alive tomorrow? Will my family be able to eat because we have jobs or we don't? Because of my faith. Because of their faith, they were enduring things that if they had not placed their faith in God, these things would never have been taking place in their lives. Make no mistake about it. Following Jesus is costly. For us too. Jesus never said it wouldn't be. We almost live a faith that is not even biblical, if you will. So with that as the base, let's remember for a minute what Pastor Travis taught us last week. And I'm just going to go over this briefly in case you weren't here. Because 6 through 9 actually go together so well. They fit like a glove together. I'm just going to briefly talk about what he said. He told us that the hard times are, that we go through in life, that the difficult times, the trials, the tribulations that we go through, basically two things. Number one, they're necessary. And number two, they're purposeful. They're necessary. <laughs> yeah. They have to happen. This process of following Jesus, if you, if you gave your life to Christ so it would be easier, welcome to the family. Because it's not. And Jesus never said it wouldn't be. In fact, he said just the opposite. He said, they're persecuting you on account of me. If you put me down, things will be better. At least in this life. Persecution is real. Hard times are real. They're necessary, but they're also purposeful. God allows distress and difficulties to sharpen, hone, and mature us. Charles Stanley points out in his book that we've been selling, and by the way, we have a few left out there if you'd like to pick one up. Incredible book. Uh, uh, Make sure you go out there and get it called How to Handle Adversity. Here's what he says about adversity or hard times in our lives. He said adversity is God's most effective tool for the advancement of our spiritual life lives what's the most effective tool Tom tough times what's the best thing that can happen to me for, for me to grow in my walk with God for you to go through a struggle that's dumb well I, <laughs> it's a big black book up here's the Bible it's what it says not just because Andy not Andy his dad Charles Stanley said it I just gave Andy a shout out right there But because the Bible does. It's the most effective tool for the advancement. Listen, do you want to grow in your walk with God? Do you want to mature? Hard times are coming. From last week, we also learned that the purpose of these hard times are really twofold. The first thing that Travis said was that it was to prove my faith. He used the illustration of gold. Do you remember that illustration that he used? In that illustration, the the uh, person who was smelting the gold would heat up the fire and heat up the fire to to draw those impurities out. And that person would not stop heating that fire up until one thing happened. And the one thing that had to happen was they had to be able to see themselves like a mirror in the gold. When they finally got to a place where the person who was heating up the gold in this pot could see themselves in the gold, they said, It's pure. God uses these things in our lives to prove our faith. You say, things are heating up around me. I get it. It could get hotter. But I'll tell you this, once you come out the other side, you'll be as pure as that gold. Secondly, to perfect my faith. He used the example of a diamond. He, he actually quoted uh, this phrase. He said, no pressure, no diamond. Not many of us want to be put between two rocks and push, do we? I'm between a rock and a hard place. Well, he's creating a diamond. Most of us want jello on both sides. I'm going to be a diamond never, never, to prove and to perfect. For those in this room who've gone through a struggle, if we went around and I could hand you the microphone or you could... Take a pad and begin to write down the faithfulness of God in your life through the struggles. Oh, the stories you'd tell. Oh, the things that you could say, God brought me. God brought us. God brought me through this thing. And I didn't understand why, but I do now. He grows you in ways that you will never grow apart from that. You see, the trials in our lives produce genuine faith. Like real, not fake Not just American, not just Baptist, or Methodist, or Presbyterian, or religious faith. Not just what the priest or the pastor has said, but real faith that's totally dependent and trusting in God. Here's the way J.B. Stoney, the 19th century European theologian, said it. He said, real faith is always increased by opposition, while false confidence is damaged and discouraged by it. Real faith is always increased by opposition, while false confidence is always damaged and discouraged by it. What did he mean there? Remember the context of this book that we're about to, or these verses we're about to read. He's about to say some things that you you could look at it and you could go, There's no way that they should have confidence in God after that. I mean, if they were being persecuted, if they were scattered, if there were some things they were enduring just because of their faith. There is absolutely no way they should have done that. Well, the reason is because real faith is always increased by opposition. Have you ever heard anybody say, Well, you know, I'm a believer, I follow God, but He let me down. That was false confidence. Not real faith. Listen, God doesn't let us down. You say, Tom, you don't, my, you don't know my situation. I don't have to. I tell you what, all looked lost on the day that Jesus hung on that cross, didn't it? Woohoo! It turned out for the best for us. What better could have happened? Nothing. What looked like a total loss turned into a total win for us. Whatever you're facing, it wasn't the cross. Whatever you're going through, it wasn't three nails puncturing your skin and your bones. Whatever you're going through, it wasn't a cross. God knows exactly what He's doing. So if I were to ask you this question, how many of you want genuine faith? I know that most of you would raise your hand. But how many of us are willing to endure what must be endured to have genuine, real, steadfast, proven, unbreakable, unwavering faith? I mean, do we want that? I think we do. I think in our minds we say we want that. But what does it take to get there? Well, it takes tough times. It takes hard times. It takes trials. It takes persecution. But when I say faith, I also want to make clear what I mean today. I'm not talking about the kind of faith that says, stamp my ticket, punch my ticket so I cannot go to, heaven, so I cannot go to hell and I can go to heaven. That's not what I mean today. By faith, I mean, have you placed your faith... And your trust? Are you trusting in him now? Not that he is alive, of course he's alive. Not that he was a man, of course he was a man. But what happened on the cross, was it sufficient payment for your sin? When I say faith, I mean total trust in what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, on the only thing that we needed. That's what I mean by faith. What kind of faith do we have? And we're looking here at at, at these folks who are in 1 Peter and were looking into the kind of faith that they absolutely had. Not the kind of faith that punched their ticket for heaven. Hey, listen, grace upon grace upon grace when we talk about heaven, that's icing on the cake. We're talking about relationship with Jesus. Just as a side note here, eternity doesn't start when you die physically. Eternity started the moment you gave your life to Jesus. I, uh, 46, I know I look like I'm 21. <laughs> 46. You know, that's getting younger and younger. My dad used to say that, and I was like, that's pretty old, Pop. It's actually pretty young. But I, I, my kids can tell you, they're over here with my wife today, and they can tell you when I get up off the couch, now there's like something going on. I don't know. It just happened. It just, you know what I mean, Bob? You probably don't. You don't have these problems. But like I get up off the couch and then I'm, like, I'm kind of like this. And then it's like one joint at a time. Yeah. And then I kind of limp for a minute. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Anybody else with me on that, right? Listen, I know you're going to die, so am I, but I'm not talking about that kind of death. Eternal life started the moment you gave your life to Christ. Eternal life. Allow me to explain for just a minute or give you an example of something that happened in my life as I asked this question Have you ever needed something? You ever needed anything? I mean, like, really needed something? I'm not talking about a new car, you know, a new house. uh, you know, a bigger house. I'm not, I'm not talking about a want. I mean, have you really needed something? When I was in seminary a long time ago, my wife doesn't know I'm telling this story, but, but she can attest to it. Just ask her. I woke up one night, and I literally thought I was dying. I'm telling you, I thought, I, I thought this is it. I was confessing sin I hadn't even done. <laughs> Anything to stop this pain. I went to the bathroom, nothing worked. I went to the living room, I stood on my head, I had my feet straight up in the air. I was curled up like a pretzel, I was laid flat out, I was trying to get cool, I was trying to get warm. I thought, there's something, I'm dying. She went over to the the computer and internet wasn't too far along at that point, so it took a minute to pull it up. She goes, oh, you, you got a kidney stone. Well, thank you, Dr. Crystal. But she was right. But called my buddy 3 in the morning. I said, hey, man, John, you got to come get me. The kids are little. Crystal's going to stay with the kids. My friend took his sweet time to come get me. It was probably two minutes, but it felt like an hour and a half. I mean, I was hurting. Anybody else had kidney stones? Tell, hey, am I telling the truth here? I'm telling you, these things are ridiculous. We, we need a support group. It did something in my life I'll never be able to be get over. I mean, it hurt like I was dying. My friend picks me up. I beat his car all the way. I mean, I was in so much pain. I was dry heaving, and it was it was just ridiculously bad. I get to the, I, I'd only put my shorts on and a T-shirt and, and, and just threw my flip-flops on. And we. I, I run into the emergency room. I throw down my, I had two things with me. I had my, my medical card because I'm a cheapskate, and I just wanted to make sure, you know, the money got paid to the right place, right, brother? You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't take mine. So. And my driver's license, because I didn't know if I'd be able to tell them who I was. Because I'm telling you, I was mad by this point. I'm, I'm angry, I'm hurting. I said, I'm dying to this lady. This is the lady behind the desk, I said, I'm dying, I need something now. Here's what she did she went, <laughs> I mean, if somebody tells you they're dying, she goes, You got a kidney stone. I said, How do you know? She said, I've seen it before. Sit down right there. Sit down. No, I need behind that curtain. And I need some narcotics now. Right now. The legal kind, by the way. About 15 seconds into giving me that. That injection, not even that long, 10 maybe. Everything was great. I needed it, didn't I? Oh! You ever needed something really bad? Something you couldn't fix? Something you can't handle on your own? Have you ever needed? Let me ask you ask it this way. Have you ever needed God. Now listen, don't get all Baptist spiritual on me, okay? Some of you grew up in a very, you know, of course we need God. No, I'm talking about do you need God? You ever been in that place? Well listen, the truth is, is we all need God. But everybody doesn't know they need God. Have you ever thought that maybe the reason you're in the circumstance you're in is because you need to know Him better? Have you ever thought that the reason that you are where you are is because God knows that you don't know as much about you as you think you know? That's the reason. Those are the, what Pastor Travis talked about last week, approving our faith and, 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 and testing it and, and, and giving us what we need to become the people that we couldn't otherwise. Miles J. Stanford wrote a book called The Complete Green Letters. I encourage all of you to get it. I don't think we sell it out here, though. I think we're working on that. Here's what he said in his book called The Complete Green Letters. This is life-changing if you'll just take this in, okay? God's basic ingredient for growth is need. Without basic needs, we would get nowhere in our Christian life. The reason our Father creates and allows needs in our lives is to turn us from all that is outside of Christ, centering us in Him alone. There's a tearing down before there's a building up. Needs cause us to reach out and appropriate by faith what we require. Do you see what the first thing he said? God's basic ingredient for growth is need. There's a tearing down before there's a building up. For those of you who've been through struggles, for those of you who've been through hard times, maybe you're in the middle of it right now, you know this to be the case, right? There's some tearing down before there can be some building up. This is a basic thing that God knows about us. We don't need more of us. We need more of Him. We need to understand Him better. As humans, we only grasp for what we need. I'm telling you, that night I wasn't stopping for a hamburger. I like hamburgers. I didn't care if I had tickets to the St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. I didn't. i tell you what I needed. Narcotics. I'll tell you this, until you get to a place where you know you need God, you won't have Him. Maybe the reason that God's put you in that place is to bring you to Him. After Peter prays this prayer in 1 Peter chapter 1, for the chosen and scattered, in verses 3 and 5 is kind of a prayer to them, he begins to boast about them by encouraging them and reminding them of the obvious lives they are outwardly and intentionally living. Even though they're in the midst of turmoil, their lives are giving off the fragrance and the aroma of real followers of Jesus. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9, but we're going to focus on 8 through 9. The reason I'm reading 6 through 9 is because they go together. Look at verse 6. The Bible says in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to, be, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he starts saying something that's, that's exactly backwards of what humanity would think it should be. They're going through some stuff, okay? They're in the middle of persecution, hard times, trials, tribulations, and here's what he notices about them. He says, and though you've not seen him, you love him. In other words, you're not mad at him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. In other words, your faith hasn't wavered just because your circumstance has. And then lastly, and you greatly rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He said it's not put you in an attitude where you're toxic to those around you. Or you're sad all the time. Or depressed because of the situation as if God doesn't know. In fact, it's exactly opposite of that. You constantly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. You overwhelmingly rejoice in words that I can't even describe. One commentator entitled these two verses, Unseen but Not Unknown. Our God, though, I want you to think for a second, how many people really saw Jesus on the earth? You say thousands. Well, great. How many followed? Not many. I mean, like who actually saw the face of Jesus to be able to believe, right? Who actually saw him? I'll tell you, it wasn't Abraham. It wasn't all the Old Testament saints. There are some sightings of Jesus in the Old Testament, no doubt about it. But for the most part, they never saw Jesus. What about after Jesus' death? None of us, except for the few that were around before Jesus went to heaven, right? Which are none of us, right? Anybody 2,000 in the room today? But here's what I can tell you. Even the people who were on the earth who saw him didn't follow him. In John chapter 6, there was a multitude of people following. The next thing he knew, there were 12. They said, I can't handle this. In Acts chapter 1, what we see is 120 people gathered in an upper room. There must have been 120 there were 3,000 saved after his death. Did they see him? Maybe, probably so. Yeah, they saw him on the cross. I get all that. But understand that percentage-wise, there really haven't been many people who saw the face of... What does that tell us? That seeing Jesus isn't what... Isn't the clincher. Now, he's coming back. Praise God. And we'll see him forever. Amen? But giving your life to Christ, if are you one of those people that says, I got to see it to believe it? If I don't see it, I won't believe it. Well, then you'll never believe in Jesus. And you'll miss the reason that he died for you. There are three things really that we see right here. And they're going to go really quickly. That Peter noticed about those who were in the faith there, here in this book. And I'm going to give them to you right up front and then we'll talk about them briefly. But the first thing that he noticed was sight wasn't needed to determine love for God. That... Them seeing Jesus had nothing to do with whether they loved God or not. Secondly, sight isn't needed to live by faith in God either, and neither is it for us. That seeing Jesus did not give them more faith. And lastly, sight is not needed to produce joy in their lives. Seeing Jesus was not the reason they were joyful. You say, Boy, if I could just see Jesus, I'd be kind of all kind of joyful. No, you wouldn't. I mean, maybe. Not in this life, not in these bodies. If you can't worship Him now, if there is no joy now, what makes you think there would be if you saw Him? You see, we have a, a tendency in our culture to be very empirical, if you will, to have everything proven. We can prove the weather, right? You know, the cold front came from the, you know, and, the, and then the thing, went, you know, and then there's tornadoes. <laughs> and you know, electricity, you know that electron, neutron, proton, no, no, no. You came in today with faith because you sat down and didn't think you'd fall, right? We don't really have trouble living by faith unless it comes to spiritual things. Then we want to see it. Look at those around you who've given their lives to Christ. You can see it. He's alive in us. He looked at these people, though, and he began to say, I'm so encouraged by you because, number one, sight is not needed to determine love for God. And sight for you is is not needed either. He says here something that is kind of a past tense way to say it. He said, you've never seen God, but you love him. Here's the irony. He had seen him. (laughs) Peter's like, you've never seen him, and your love for him is amazing. And I saw him, and mine wasn't that good. (laughs) The word love here is the word agape, which is the God love. It's the love that says just because I want to, I'm going to choose to over and above with everything that I got. It's the word that was used in John 3.16 for God so loved the world. And then again in, in Romans 5.8 where the Bible says that, that he proved his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He said that's the kind of love that you have for God. You don't have to see him to believe it. In this empirical society we live in, in this very educated society that we think we are, we see religion, we, excuse me, we see spirituality as a crutch that we, I don't need that, right? I, it shows my weakness. To be honest with you, it really shows pride because we started saying everybody does need him. But sight wasn't needed. This word sight or or to be seen is literally seeing. He's talking about with the eyeballs, if you will. They hadn't, he had. He saw him in all kinds of contexts, right? I mean, go throughout the, the Gospels and you'll see Peter all over the place. From the time he met Jesus to the transfiguration, to the upper room, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the cross. He is watching Jesus. But Peter's encouraging words were really words of amazement for him. He said, you love him and you've never seen him. You've never seen him yet, you love him. You see, their love for God wasn't based on seeing with their eyes. And listen, if you're following Jesus and you love him today, it's not because you've seen him with your eyes. But because they were going through what they were going through, it would seem that they shouldn't love Jesus more, they should love him less. Isn't that awesome about what Christianity truly is? Let me ask you this. Has your hard time or your struggle caused you to love Jesus less? Because that was never the intent. True faith or false confidence? Secondly, Peter talks about sight not being needed to live by faith. Peter said this, though you don't see him now, but believe in him. Peter was in their camp by this point because Peter could no longer see him either. So he understood this well. He was still amazed though. You did, you've never seen him and you loved him. You don't see him now and you believe in him. These two Greek words, pisteo, ice, are words that were never put together before the Bible. They, you can't find these words put together ever. They were never meant to be words that, that meant anything to the Greek speakers, ever. Peter put them together because there's almost this picture, one theologue, Wayne Grudem said, that it's almost a picture of us going inside of Jesus. Like like our trust, our faith, our belief in him is us going inside of Jesus and Jesus surrounding us, much like the picture of the ark and Noah. Noah went in the ark, the ark shut. Nobody could open it until God opened it. You see the picture? He said, Believe in. That sight wasn't needed to live by faith, to believe in God. John 20, 29, Jesus said this. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. This word is the word that was also used in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 where he said happy. Happy are those fortunate are those... Who are free from the daily cares and worries of this world. How fortunate, how happy they are. He said, How fortunate and happy they are who have not seen yet believe. Of which, if you're a Jesus follower today, you're in that camp too. Is it, I mean, do you ever sit around sometime, maybe lay in bed at night, and think, Am I crazy? I mean, this whole, you know. There's like a building over there that I go in and raise my hands to somebody I've never seen. And then they pass the offering plate and I put money in that thing. You ever think like that? Listen, what drives you is not that you don't know. It's that you are not just thinking you know. It's that you are for sure you know. Sight does not give us faith. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says as much. He says we walk by faith, not by sight. You say, you Christians, you know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you say, you Christians, y'all are crazy, halfway. But we just don't believe in him because somebody told us that. Listen, he changed my life. I'm not the same dude. Things happen that I can't explain. That's why he goes to that next point about joy that's unexpressible, unutterable, and full of glory. How do you explain such? You can't. Are you resting in Jesus today? E.G. Selwyn said this. He's a theologian, uh, 20th century theologian. He said this. He said, this way of seeing Jesus is only possible, of not seeing, but seeing. It's kind of odd, but you know what I'm saying. I've never seen Jesus, but he's real. This way of seeing Jesus is only possible because Jesus is not someone who lived in a book and died and who exists only as a figure in a book. He is someone who lived, <coughs> excuse me, and died and who is alive forevermore. Jesus isn't dead. This guy, listen, he goes on to say this. He said, it has been said that no apostle ever remembered Jesus. That is to say Jesus is not only a memory. He is a person whose presence we can experience and whom we can meet. Listen, Jesus is not alive in heaven waiting for us to get there. He's right here. He's here on this earth. You understand that? He's alive forevermore. See, here's what would be crazy. If my God were dead or if he were waiting somewhere else, then I'm nuts. But he's not. He is alive. He is living forevermore. It's one thing to see and believe, but it's altogether another to believe without seeing. And if the only way that you will ever believe is to see, then you will never believe. In the Bible, there's a story about a, a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was a follower of God, and the and rich man wasn't. You, some of you remember this story, right? And in this story, they die at the same time. And the Bible says that, that um, Lazarus goes to paradise, heaven. And the, and the rich man goes to hell. And when the rich man gets to hell, he asks God, he said, I have brothers. Can somebody go back and tell them that they don't want to come to this awful place? And do you remember what God said? They could go back smelling like smoke and your brothers wouldn't believe him. Because it's not by sight. People don't believe like that. They either believe because they believe and they have faith in what God has said in his word. He said they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, tell them to read the Bible. If they won't believe that, they won't believe if somebody comes back who smells like hell. Their faith in him... Was not based on seeing with their eyes, no more than their love was. Their faith in him originated in what they had experienced from him, which was their own life change. And then, number three, sighted wasn't also needed, was also not needed to produce joy in their life. This is the second time in, two, uh, in four verses where Peter uses this phrase, You greatly rejoice. He used it in verse six, now he's using it again in, in, at, at the end of verse eight. He says, you greatly rejoice. You are rejoicing through though you are hurting. You are rejoicing though you do not like what you're going through. You're rejoicing even though this isn't an enjoyable experience for you. You still rejoice. How were they rejoicing? He said it. Inexpressible, full of glory. This word inexpressible means unable to be explained with words. You ever felt like that? Was there something where somebody said, tell me what happened? You go, I can't. It's unbelievable. And they said, well, tell me the whole thing. It was, and the best thing they can come up with is this word. Awesome. (laughs) Well, tell me more. That's all I got. (laughs) Why not? I can't express it well enough for you. You have to experience that. He said it's inexpressible, but it's full of glory. All the Hebrew speakers would understand this too because it brought back to mind a word that was an Old Testament word. It was the word kavod, which had to do with, with heaviness or weightiness or glory, the glory of God. How do you explain all the characteristics of God? How do you do that? Let's see. He's uh, unchanging. Okay, that's one. Yeah. He's gracious and merciful and loving and kind and faithful. and You just go on. And listen, you'll never explain it. In fact, there are words that we don't even have that we should have to be able to express it, but it's inexpressible. It's full of glory. It's weighty. There's a lot. So this joy that they had, they couldn't explain it. I mean, love and faith, Tom, I get that. The whole love and uh, faith thing... You know, struggles, you still love God. Yeah, I love God. Let's see. The whole uh, faith thing, through struggles and trials, I get God. Yeah, yeah, I got. I still got faith. Well, then why don't your faith know about it? Because there's no joy. You say, Tom, you've never been through a struggle? Yeah. Is it fun? No. Did you lose your joy? No. Trusting in God means no matter what. All of us who are following Jesus are going to go through something. It may look different for you than it does me, but we are promised of that. These folks who were going through these struggles and these trials, this actual persecution, they never lost their joy. And it overwhelmed Peter. I can see it in your eyes. I can sense it in what you say. It is indescribable. It is full of glory. Why were they rejoicing? Because they weren't focused on the present difficulty. They were focused on the outcome shaped through that difficulty. He says obtaining as the outcome in verse 9 of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining. Obtaining is not a word that means in the future you'll get it. Now listen close here, okay? Obtaining as the outcome of doing all this stuff. God's finally going to give you salvation when you die. Obtaining is a present tense word. It means you got it now. Everything you need, God's given you now. Remember what I said just a minute ago. Eternity doesn't start when you physically die. Eternity started when you gave your life to Jesus. And part of giving your life to Jesus is having to go through some things that are creating in you. That are you're the you're the gold in that pot. You're the uh, uh, the uh, a diamond that's being formed and pressured by those rocks. To make you more usable for him. To bring more out of you and to allow more of him to shine through you. If you've been through a trial, you're not the same as you were. And if you're worse than you were, then there may have been a false confidence there. Because true faith, Jesus takes that which is clay and makes it into something very beautiful. That's what he does. And that's who he is. When you think through what it means to not focus on the present difficulty, but to focus on the outcomes that shapes that difficulty. Let me give you a few examples and I'll be done. Anybody? Is it just me? Now listen, don't. Keep these words to yourself. Is, any, is it just me or does anybody else need to lose weight? Just saying. Just, hey, I, you ain't got to tell me, all right? And don't, don't be looking at me like you, you, buddy. not I'm not blind. I got a mirror. But you know what's difficult about losing weight? It's not after the weight's lost. It's like in that time, you know. I mean, my wife can cook, obviously. You know how difficult it is for me to look at my little chicken and green beans and over here she made a cake? That's cruel. You know, you're in the middle of it. Or or, or when your parents say, hey... Study for the test and, you know, there's something on Netflix that looks a whole lot better. Going to go out with your friends, you know, but this test, I can wait. You know, college, really where it matters is college. You heard that one or said that? See, the difficulty comes in the time, not after. And what God's doing in the middle of it, too, is the same exact thing. There's this place that you want to be, to, You're just not, we're just not ready to go through it to get there. People lose weight who go through it. People make good grades when they go through it. People become more like Jesus when they go through it. Many many of us say these words. I'll believe it when I see it. But the Bible reminds us of what true faith really is. Hebrews 11:1 says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things. Not seen. For us to possess or display in any way the kind of attitude that says, I'll believe it when I see it, is not Christianity at all. Christianity is a believing, loving, having joy kind of life without having to physically see. It's by faith that we live in Jesus. Paul said it like this. Now this is, for American Christians this is difficult, okay? But this is true. Paul said these words, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, indeed, like for sure, bank on this. This will happen. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know how that could be written? It will definitely happen. I think one time before I told you a story that's not in my notes, but I just feel compelled to tell it, and it'll, it'll be short. I asked a guy this one time. A guy that I met, I came into uh, an Eastern Asian culture that was a very persecuted culture. I went upstairs to this room where there were probably 50 to 70 people in a room that was honestly smaller than the size of just the stage from here to there. And I was standing at the front, and I preached for three straight hours. And after it, the pastor came up to me. And I'd heard stories about what I'm about to tell. But I heard this with my own ears. I look at that pastor who was a pastor of an underground church where if they, were all, if they were found, they would all be put in prison. The pastor would probably never get out of prison. They, the rest probably would, but he probably wouldn't. And there are people, by the way, standing in line to be that guy. Anyway. I asked him, I said, can we pray that you wouldn't be persecuted? And here's what he said to me. He said, oh, never pray that. Nope, don't pray that. I said, why not? He said, well, the Bible says, you know. You never read the Bible? It says we will be persecuted. What's up with you, dude? Are you a Christian? Are you a spy? <laughs> you know? No, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, yeah, I got it. Do you know that people who are persecuted get that? They understand that that's supposed to happen? Only people who aren't or are who find themselves in a place where, oh my goodness. this is, No, he said, definitely if you are wanting to live a life that's godly, you will be persecuted. As we're thinking through how these people didn't give up what they believed. Didn't give up their love for God. Didn't give up their joy. They really saw it as, I'm going through this trial, and God's making me into something I would never have been. I want us to leave this series with just a few takeaways they are going to be up on the screen for you. And here they are. Number one, hard times are normal. I know they don't seem that way, but for the Christian, they're normal. Secondly, hard times are necessary. We talked about that a little last week. They have to happen. Number three, hard times won't last forever. There's a piece of good news, right? There's a beginning, there's an end. Number four, hard times cause us to become who we would never become without them, who we never would have been without them. We don't need to be more like us or become a better us. We need to become totally Him. And number five, hard times are allowed for the expansion of God's kingdom. Difficult, persecution, hard time, whatever you want to call it, is used for the expansion of God's kingdom. Other people will come to Christ because of what you endure. Number six, hard times are intended to bring us closer to Him. And then look at this last part, and many times, farther from our sin. After the last service, I had a guy come up to me and he said, he said Pastor, he said, uh, he said man, I, I loved it. I believe everything you said. That was great. He said, but I look back at my own life and I think I caused most of it. I said, you know what? I don't know, but you may have. But here's the awesome thing about Jesus. He uses things we mess up for himself. Isn't that grace upon grace upon grace? What a God that we serve today. As we're finishing, I want to challenge you with something. Scott, you guys can come on up and begin to play if you'd like. Hannah, I want to challenge us with something today. If you're a believer I just want to exhort you to just trust Jesus. Trust Him. He knows what He's doing. He is fully aware of the situation that you're in. And He loves you more than you could ever even love yourself. God knows. And not only does He know, He knows when it's over. And it won't last forever. Trust Him. Let Him use it for Himself. And then secondly, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus... The question is, why not? Is it because you can't see Him? Is it because it seems like it's a, that Christianity Christianity's a crutch? Is it because it can't be proven? Because there's an empirical method that you work through? Because listen, I, I, I've been there. You say, it's not adding up. Well, is your life adding up? Like the way that you'd like to be? Are you the kind of person that you'd like to be? or? You need God. The one thing that keeps us from Him is our pride. People don't have a problem believing that Jesus was a man any more than they have a problem believing that George Washington was a man. People have a problem believing that what Jesus did accomplished something that we need. I don't know if today you're an atheist or an agnostic or just somebody who's just put out with the church or you've heard it so many times, it's become a clanging symbol to you. But you need God. And if you've never given your life to Christ, we want to give you a, a chance to do that today. And so as soon as I finish praying and the praise team, Hannah, and, and the guys begin to sing and play, we're going to have pastors here and we want to talk to you about it. Just come say, hey, I, I, I want to make a step. I don't. Maybe you're not ready today. I, I, I got it. I can't talk you into it. Somebody else could talk you out of it if I did. But would you just take a step and say, "Could you help me and tell me more about that?" We'd love to do that. So as soon as we stand, don't wait. Just come here, grab somebody by the hand, and tell them what you're thinking. If you're a person here who's going through a trial and you just want to use these altar, use these steps as an altar to pray. Please do that. If you need some help from other pastors. or or somebody who's standing up here just to pray with you through a struggle we want to help you do that too here's what I can tell you Jesus is all you need Lord Jesus there's nobody who's like you you've proven over and over and over in my own life not to trust you would be total foolishness on my part but God I didn't always think like that So God, today, maybe there are Christians here who aren't far along in their faith, they haven't been Christian long, or maybe they've been in a trial for so long, God, they've kind of lost their way. God, would you impress on their heart Holy Spirit to trust you today, to continue trusting you. And then Lord, if there are those here who need to give their lives to you, I pray that you've already began to convict them of sin and righteousness. And God, maybe just in in a little way, God, they're... They're opening that door that says, Lord, I I, I need you. So God, whatever that is, we're here for you. This is your church. We are your people. And these are your ways. And we trust you. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name.